So there's no shortage of, of anger and rancor and hostility, bloodshed, warfare. It's hate, hatred in our world. I know the, most of you are aware of the incident noon and yesterday, the, the rallies, but three dozen white supremacists holding a rally in Noonan, Georgia, is in reality just a tiny drop in the ocean of animosity that is planet Earth. I mean, you really, it is. And this is the world in which we live as elect exiles. That's what Peter calls us. We are pilgrims. We're citizens of another kingdom passing through this world that's not our own. We don't belong here. We belong elsewhere, but we do live here now. And so we have this kind of dual reality. And, and, it's, and it's not just that while we're living here, we're a little bit different. We're a little odd. It's not just that we're different. It's that we're disdained here. Historically speaking, I realize we are privileged to live in a land and at a time when it's, we may not feel this as, as greatly as the vast majority of Christians throughout the world today and certainly historically have felt this. But historically speaking, we're not a moral majority that, that just kind of bumps into a hate group every now and then, as it were. Though in reality, we are a small group of sojourners and the whole world is a hate rally. So how do we live here? How do we live here? How do we conduct ourselves as those who've been redeemed by God and promised this future inheritance in heaven, which is where we ultimately belong? But, but for now, how do, we, how do we continue to live in this world that's at odds with us and ultimately is at odds with our God? How do we, how do we live here? One thing that's clear is that we will stand out. We will stand out. And against this backdrop of this hate-filled world, there's... There's something about us that should really shine brightly. And what is it? It's in our text. It's love. It's mutual love for one another is to be the marquee of the church. Jesus said it like this in the upper room discourse on the night before his crucifixion, John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Well, welcome back to 1 Peter. Um, we're in it again. And so 1 Peter, remember, is written to Christians who are suffering. It's written to, it, it, they're, they're, they're living in a culture that's increasingly uh, hostile to them, and that they're increasingly at odds with. And so this is a letter that's full of comfort, but it's not only a letter of comfort. So Peter calls his readers and he calls us to, to give ourselves fully to God even in times of suffering. And to do things God's way. In times of suffering, it's, it's tempting, if we're honest, to turn in on ourselves, to be really self-focused and self-oriented, just, just plain selfish, to, to forget about God, forget about other people. And so we become very turned in on ourselves. And what Peter is doing, he's calling us away from that. And he, and he calls us, even in times of incredible difficulty, pain and suffering and, and ostracism, to participate fully in this beautiful plan and purpose of God. 
That's how you need to see this section that we're in. So remember in verses 1 to 12, Peter reminds us of all of these incredible blessings that are ours because of what is God, has, God has done for us in Jesus Christ. This, this, he's, he's just pushing our hearts and our minds and flooding them with the realities of this great salvation that is ours because of Christ. And then you get in verse 13 and it begins this with this, Therefore... So he's going to unfold, and in light of this great salvation, uh, how do you live in a way that keeps God's grand purpose in view? Yes, even in times of suffering. So don't see this as we turn to the commands and say, okay, all right, there's just duty now. It's just, it's just got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. That's not it. It's, it's, in, it's God calling us to live lives that are, that are born out of this great salvation. And what does it look like to live and be part of God's plan, God's purpose, God's way of living in this world as his children? He's, in, he's inviting us to that. And so you, you might say that the summary of this whole call is found in verse 16. You shall be holy for I am holy. This is in its entirety, this section, it's a call to holiness, to otherness, be set apart. How does God demonstrate His own holiness? Thomas Carinard showed us this last week. How does God show His holiness? In everything. In everything He does. He is holy. Every attribute of His is holy. Everything He does is holy. So, the, so for us, when we're to be holy as God is holy, it's, it's an all-encompassing call to be holy in everything, in every situation, in every location, in every circumstance of life. Suffering doesn't change this. Difficulty doesn't change this. Not even persecution changes this. This is a call, again, to give yourself to God's purpose and plan no matter what's going on in your life. Now, as a pastor in this church, I know a lot of the things that are going on in your life and your face, things that you're facing right now. There's sickness and disease and chronic pain that, that are among us. There are people who've faced incredible losses. There are people who are facing right now seemingly insurmountable financial difficulties. There are parents who are weeping for children. There are folks who have been abused in different ways. And so the temptation is to settle for survival when you're times like that. But in this section of 1 Peter, we're called we're being called to step way beyond survival, brothers and sisters. This is a call to give yourself even in times of weakness and pain and difficulty and opposition and need and want to give yourselves to the plan of God. To see your stories of real pain and suffering in in God's greater story. That's what this section is really about. So look at we First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Let's read uh, these four verses and uh, follow along as I read. Starting in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever 
And this word is the good news that was preached to you. All right, just those few verses. But he, so here's the here's the structure of these few verses of this passage. The central central point of this passage is a call to love. There's one command in these few verses that we just read, and it's there in verse 22. And so before and after this command to love one another, there are these two supporting motivations or reasons to love one another. So that's kind of the structure. But again, verse 22, let's see this command again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So just two questions to guide our time this morning. And they're answering this, or, or two points this morning, answering this question. Why, why love? Why love one another? First one is this. It's because we have been clearly commanded by God to love one another. We've been clearly commanded by God to love one another. So Peter's command is built on that Greek idea of agape. And, and if you know any Greek word, that's probably the one you know. And so agape, is, it's the main word in the New Testament for love, though there's, uh, there, are, there are other words. But agape, you could define it like this. It's a total commitment to seek the highest good of another person, no matter how they respond. A total commitment to seek the highest good of another person, no matter how they respond. That's, that's agape love. Or someone said a shorter version of that. It's willful delight in the object of love. And now that sounds maybe a little too trite, but just listen to what's being said there. It's not a feeling. It's willful. It's where our wills are engaged. It's, it's not just a duty. It's delight. It's not just a generic kind of a general feeling of love. No, there's an object of love. And so that's, that's agape. You, if you want to see what it looks like, just this is the, the beautiful, the beauty of agape love. We have that portrait of it in 1 Corinthians 13. And, and just part of it is, is that concise statement that love is patient and kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So that's the word that we're commanded to here in 1 Peter 1.22. Love one another with that kind of love. Now, Peter is going to detail this for us in, in four ways. And so, four, four things to note about this love to which we're commanded. First, it's, un, it's to be unmasked love. Unmasked love. It's to be sincere or without hypocrisy. It doesn't pretend to be something it's not. And so this is way beyond some kind of well-mannered cultural niceness. You know, good old boy, yeah, I'm, I love people. I love everyone. That's, this is way beyond that. It's beyond flattery or some kind of self-promoting uh, encouragement where really the purpose is... I'm doing these things because I actually want to get something from you. No, that's not it at all. It's, this is love that's born out of sincerity of heart. It's, it's genuine. It's without a mask. And so sincere love says something like this. I have been loved by God. I am being loved. I will forever be loved by God. And in the sincerity of thanks and worship and gratitude and praise and joy to God for that, I long to extend that kind of love 
to the people that God has placed in my life. This is, this is what we're talking about here. It's not, it's not just an act. It's, it's not a formalistic duty. This is sincere love. It flows from sincerity of heart because I'm just blown away by the majesty of the Lord and of His love for me. And I, I sincerely love others. So that's, that's one aspect of this, that, that we have, by God's grace, been enabled to love this way and been called to love this way, sincerely. Second, it's to be familial love. Familial love. There's another word for love in this passage, and it's not connected to the imperative, but it comes prior to that, and we'll talk about how that fits in a moment. But he talks about to, that we're, we're made to be able to love in a brotherly way. Brotherly love. Philadelphia love. That's actually the word in the, in the Greek. And so I don't mean love like you find on the streets of Philadelphia. Uh, two guys, you know, fighting over which cheesesteak stand is the best or something like that. Um, but it's, it's brotherly. What, is, what does that mean? I mean, obviously we're talking family here. But what that means is it's not love that stands above another person and looks down on them. We're alongside one another. It's the sort of, it's, it's not that sort of, I'm, I'm better than you, and so I show pity on you. Condescending kind of love. That's not brotherly love. It's standing alongside. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the, we have this common identity. We share this together. I am like you. I have not arrived. I am in process like you are. And, and I stand in need of love, giving love. That's what we're talking about when we talk about brotherly love. Everything I give you, I need also. Because I'm like you. And so no matter who you are, no matter your age, no matter your position in life, no matter how many years you've been a Christian, you, you, you need to understand this. Christ is the only head of the church. He's the only one. Everybody else is body. We're all body. And so th- 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 this is, so when we talk about brotherly love, this is level playing field kind of love. We're alongside one another, not over and under one another. Listen, as your pastor, please minister this kind of love to me. I need it just like I know you do. I need your godly care. I need your godly affection. I need your prayer. I need your accountability. I need your godly rebuke. I need encouragement just like you do. All of us need that. I don't stand in this pulpit as a man who has arrived and have something that uh, I once needed but now you, you do need. No, I, I minister love of Christ out of a deep sense of my own need of Christ's love. And that is true for all of us. So may God help us to have this kind of brotherly love and affection for one another. So it's, it's unmasked love, it's familial love that we're called to. And then third, it's to be strenuous love. Strenuous love. Love one another, here's the command, earnestly. Now, earnest is not a word we often use today. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen that show up on a text stream with a teenager. 
uh, well, you're really earnest about this. Um, that's kind of an antiquated word in our day, but it means, and some of your translations may have, your versions may have translated differently, but fervency, fervent, zealous, strong. We're meaning it's, it's motivated, self-starting love. The, the point of this word, it's, it's, it's intensity. It's con- not, I don't just mean like intensity of feeling, but it's strenuous effort. That's the idea. It's love that goes the distance. The, the word picture that's connected with this word, it's, it's the idea of stretching out and straining. So if you could picture like uh, the Kentucky Derby and the, those horses just at full, full sprint, just stretching out, or even a, a runner that's reaching toward the finish line or a, a wide receiver who's got the ball and he's running, trying to get to the, just the corner of the end zone, just stretching out to get the ball across that plane. That's the picture of strenuous, earnest love. This is what we're called to. So what does that, what does that mean then in, the, in terms of love, not just football and horse racing? Um, it means I'm looking for places to love. Active, not passive in this. I, I, have, I have eyes open and ears open and heart that's open. I'm, I'm mindful of needs and opportunities to, to love. I'm not just waiting for opportunities come, to come to me. I'm not waiting for the church to design a program so that I'll have a, a, a means to show love to others. I'm not waiting to be pointed to a need uh, for love. I'm zealous and committed and active and strenuous, looking for those opportunities to incarnate the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in some situation, in some relationship, in some uh, moment in a person's life. And so love, love must be earnest, fervent, or strenuous. That's true in marriage. It's true in parenting. It's true in friend, with friendships. It's certainly true in the church, which is where... Peter's applying that here. Does that describe you? Are you scanning, are you scanning uh, the situations and relationships in which God has you, looking for those opportunities in which you can love others? As not, again, not as one above, but as a brother in Christ. Fourth and, and, and last here, what, the, what, what is this kind of love that we're commanded to? It's this, it's to be comprehensive love comprehensive love it's love that comes from a pure heart peter says from a pure heart that heart is as peter uses as as the biblical writers use it it's that center of our being it's it's mission control it's the engine room of our lives and so i know we, we we're talking about love and we're talking about heart and our tendency is to go to valentine's day or to some romantic comedy and they all oh, just gushy feelings and and i'm not saying feelings have nothing to do with that but that's not peter's primary point here the the heart is 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 it's the core of our being and so when he's talking about love from a pure or unmixed uh, heart, it's this deep, comprehensive love from the very core of our being. It's not just pasting on nice words. It's not just doing a, 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 a nice deed, uh, a loving deed. It's not just having loving feelings toward people. No, from the very core of my being, my desires, my, my passions, my emotions, my will, my thoughts, everything is engaged in love. This is what Peter is 
calling us to, what God is calling us to as his children, all that we are. So does that describe us, that picture of of love, the sincere, brotherly, earnest, pure-hearted love? That's hard. No, that's impossible on my own. I can't. You can't. I mean, this call to love like this should make us say, I need help. I can't do this. Because the the motives of my own heart, brothers and sisters, are so mixed. I might start out with with, uh, kind of a pure love for others, but it can get twisted and turned into um, just a a sick kind of self-focused, idolatrous love in no time. And so, we, we need help. This call to love, it should drive us to Christ. It should drive us to Him for help. It should drive us to the cross and to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why so many times in Scripture, when we're talking about how we're to love one another, that command is rooted in the fact how, of what God is, how God has loved us in Jesus Christ. We'll come back there in a moment. But you and I should say, we don't love Lord, we don't always love Lord with this kind of sincerity of heart. We have mixed motives. We don't always love with brotherly affection. We don't always love strenuously, earnestly, fervently. We can get so into our schedules and our plans and our desires and our uh, purposes that we forget what we've been called to. We don't, we, we, can, we can be so mixed with our motives. So we say, oh Lord, help us. I need, I need your grace. I need your help. And for, forgive us for, forgive me for my self-centeredness. Give me a heart to love in a way that honors you and in a way that's good for your people. This is, this is how, this is what this should drive us to. This, this command, this call to love. Oh, that God, though, would grow in our hearts, brothers and sisters, not perfectly, but increasingly love for one another that is sincere and brotherly and earnest and pure-hearted. I pray that that will be a trajectory that we're always on. Now, this command doesn't sit alone, and they never do like this. On, on, above and below this command to love, there are, these, there, are these, there are these truths that are there to support this command. And so that brings us to the second point. Why love? One, because we've been clearly commanded by God to love one another. And then two, because we've been eternally changed by God so that we can love one another. We've been eternally changed by God so that we can love one another. So there's... I say two reasons, because there's one on either side of this command. But in, in reality, we're going to see that it's really one reason. We're looking at it from, from different angles. And so, one angle is our response to the gospel. Another angle is God's sovereign act of causing us to be born again by, uh, through the gospel. And so, that's, that's what we see. So, verse 22, you see this in the text with me. begins, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth... And then I'm going to break the servants up to a sentence up to just its royal mind. So having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, there's one reason. Love one another. And then you skip down, verse 23. 
love one another, since you have been born again. That's kind of the raw form of the sentence, and then it's filled out from there. So first reason, first aspect, the first way we've been changed by God so that we can love one another is that we've been cleansed by obedience to the gospel. We've been cleansed by obedience to the gospel. So look at verse 22 again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. So let me, let me quickly break this down. I know it sounds a little, seems a little tricky at, at first. This language is not what we're used to seeing. But we put it in its context. And I think what becomes clear is when he talks about truth, the obedience to truth, when he says that, he's talking about the word of God. We see this in verse 23. And then you look down at verse 25. It's this word that was preached to us, which is the gospel. And, 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 and it's the truth about salvation. This is, this is what's just come before verse 22. In eight, verses 18 to 20, 21, it's this message that we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And it's through Him that we are believers to God who raised us up with Him from the dead and gave, raised Him up and gave Him glory so that our faith and our hope are in God. So it's that, it's that message. So what is obedience to this truth then? Obedience to the gospel. The word obedience here literally means to hear from under. So what, what, is, what is an obedient response to the gospel? It's faith. It's faith. When, what the gospel calls for is faith. Faith is obedience to the truth of the gospel. You see this in many places in scripture, like Romans 1.7. So by our obedience to the truth, we've purified our souls. That's what he's saying at this first part of the sentence. So soul purity is the result of obeying the gospel, which is faith. I agree with most commentators here that, 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 that through this kind of unusual construction and, 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 and wording here, it's, it's synonymous with salvation by faith. That's the context. Our faith in the gospel, Christ, has led to cleanse hearts and that paves the way for love. That's what's being communicated. So if you, if you want to build a house on just about any scrap of spare land in Georgia, what's the first thing you're going to have to do after getting bug spray all over you? Uh, you got to clear the trees. There are trees everywhere, at least in this part of Georgia. And so you got you to gotta clear the lot so that you can build the house. And so that's, what, that's what's happened. That's just what I think Peter's saying. We've obeyed the gospel, trusted in Christ, so we're purified, which then allows us to love one another. All the filth, all of the, the sin, all of the selfishness, it's been washed by the Lord. I don't mean that it's completely gone and removed, because one of the things we see is this having purified yourselves. It's a perfect tense participle. Now, I know we, perfect tense, we think, well, that's the best tense of them all. So I, why isn't every verb perfect tense? No, that's not the point. But when you, when you say that in a Greek perfect tense, it's just saying something that's happened in the past and the effects of that continue on into the present. So we've been purified, and yet there's this lingering result in the present. And so there's continual purification that's going on, even though we've been washed. You can clear the trees off a lot in Georgia, and what are you going to have to do a year from now? You're going to have to clear these little tiny trees off the lot in Georgia. And so little saplings come up everywhere. And so Peter's reminding us of this work of grace in our hearts. His work of grace, it rescues us from that innate selfishness that we were all born with so that we're now ready with hearts cleansed. 
with the lot cleared and the effects still continuing to love one another. This is what he's saying. So we're cleansed by the obedience to the gospel. And then a, a second aspect of how God has changed us so that we're enabled to love one another is that we, have, we are reborn by the eternal gospel. We are reborn by the eternal gospel. So verse 23, love one another. That's the command in verse 22. Why? Since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now this is also another, now that you're already primed for uh, Greek grammar, this is another perfect tense participle. You, you having been born again. So, so emphasizing again the continuous present results of that past event of being born again. There are lingering Effects of this. It doesn't mean that we're always being born again. It just means that that happened. And there are lingering effects of that. And so so this is the reason. This is the motivation then to love one another. Since you've been born again. But he doesn't just say that the new birth is the reason to love one another. He emphasizes something very specific about our new birth. Hang with me. I don't want to lose you yet. This... This, we're born again, look at the text, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and abiding word of God. Now, when you see that language, if you've been with us throughout First Peter and haven't been sleeping through these messages, you see imperishable and you think, I, I know that word already. Because we've seen this, this is one of Peter's favorite words in this Letter. He's, he loves this contrast between perishable and imperishable. We saw this in verse 4 right away in this letter that our, our inheritance is imperishable. In verse 7, our faith is imperishable. Verses 18 to 19, our ransom is imperishable. Now here in verse 23, God's word is imperishable. So, so he's emphasizing this perishability of the word by which we have been born again. And so when he says the word of God, again, I think in context, what he's talking about is the gospel that has been preached in them. Verse 25, he makes this very plain. So what's his point about this gospel that has been preached in them and by which we've been born again? He's saying it lasts. It's durable. It's eternal. It, it endures. It's imperishable. It never ends. This new life that sprouted in you by the work of the Holy Spirit causing you to be regenerated through the, through the Word of God. This gospel, it cannot die. Salvation seed, God's Word is, is living. It's life-giving, life-making. And it's abiding. It's enduring. It endures forever. And so this, this permanency of the, the Word of God that's mentioned in verse 23, and Peter just goes off and he, and he elaborates on this in verses 24 to 25, and he reaches back into the Old Testament, way back to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8, and he's, 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 he's going there to emphasize the permanence of God's Word. And so just think, if, if you know much about Isaiah, which most of us know about a few passages in Isaiah, most of it's doom, gloom, judgment, just you know, God's just wiping people out left and right. It's a dark and difficult book to read. But when you get to Isaiah chapter 40, 
If, you've re- if you read through 131 through 39, it's dark and it's heavy and with a few little spots of glimmers of hope, but it's judgment, judgment, judgment. And then you get to verse 40, or chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, says the Lord. <sighs> There's this turning point in Isaiah 40. And so, so Isaiah 40, it's this message of God's consolation, God's comfort to his people who are, in, who are, in, uh, who are exiled in Babylon. And so they're scattered among strangers, far, far from home. And so hey, you think of that connection. What is First Peter? What's he, how does he begin his letter? To the elect exiles. So he's writing to suffering, scattered Christians in this world. And so Peter goes to that in Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8, as he supports this endurability, this imperishability of the word by which we've been born again. And he quotes... This passage, Isaiah 40, verse 6, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. So again, just the, the image, just picture the sunny hillside in, in Palestine. And, and so you've got grassy hills and wildflowers. I mean, that's kind of the, the scene. And so this agrarian scene. And all that grass, all that hay, which he's equating with uh, human existence, human life, and all of its flowers, all the splendor, all the beauty, it lasts for a season and then it's just gone. That's what he's, that's his point. And you think of the context. God's people exiled in Babylon, all that pomp, all that, uh, you know, human uh, show. And, and what can give hope to his people when they're surrounded by that and they're exiled in that land? What does he say? But the word of the Lord endures forever. God's promises to his people in, as they're exiled in Babylon, they are not broken. They will surely come to pass. And so Peter, again, writing to Christian exiles, he says, it is that word by which you've, that, that you've heard and, and, and that you've believed and that you've been born again by. It's that word that endures forever. And he goes and he makes this very clear in verse, the end of verse 25. And this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. Makes that connection. So Christians who have been born again by this eternal word are secure and will live with God forever. This is how he's encouraging them. So just think about what that means for us brothers and sisters as we struggle with doubts and assurance and, and, and thinking through our, our, our security with the Lord. If you've been born again through the gospel, the life that you have is imperishable. You can be assured of that. And as you think about what this means for evangelism, that that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Therefore, we should not be ashamed of it. Word we proclaim to the lost is life-giving. It's a living and abiding word. It's not, this is how, this is how we were saved. This is what the Holy Spirit used to, to cause us to be born again. And He can use us, weak instruments as we are, to, to, to be life-giving instruments to those as we proclaim His word, His gospel. But back to the main road. His point is love. This is supporting a specific command to love one another. So the question how does verse 23 to 25 provide support for verse 22? Maybe that's not very clear yet. I, 
in some sense, we, is, is Peter just saying that our new birth gives us power to love one another? That is certainly true. And I think that is certainly the case. But I, but I don't think it fully explains the emphasis on the imperishability and the abiding nature of God's word. That's a, there, there's more going on here. I, I think it's this. I think in the context of, again, we tend to read scripture most often through a very individualistic lens. Peter's writing to people that were much more aware of the communal nature of of the the gospel. And and so I think he's emphasizing is that Peter's stressing the eternal nature of the fellowship that we share with one another. This is why we love one another. Love one another for you've all been born again into a fellowship of God's people that will last forever. So therefore, love one another. That's what he's saying. Listen, the motivation to love isn't, isn't just the needs that we see around us. I know, I know that can be a kind of a... It's, it's, it's helpful to be aware. It's helpful to be reminded of and to be shown pictures of, of those in need and, and to hear statistics. But that's not, that's not to be the ultimate motivation that we love one another. It's not because it's a happier way to live, though it is. If you want a marriage that's full of love, that's a better marriage than one that's void of it. If you want a church that's full of vibrant, sincere, brotherly, fervent, pure-hearted love, that's, that's a, I, I want to be part of that church, as opposed to the one where they're all you know, screaming at each other. That's a happier place to be, but that's not the ultimate motivation. It's not, it's not just because it's important to my own personal sanctification. Though it is. It's not just about me. Like I, I need to be a more loving person. And that the focus is on me growing. And, and that's it. That's not the ultimate motivation. It's not just because it's, it's expected of, of one another. Of the church leaders. Of, of our parents. Of our spouse. Though it certainly is right to do that. The real motivation. Is what Peter's saying here. And as in the context of the letter. It's Christ. It's Christ. It's the magnitude of His love. He subjected Himself to things that none of us would ever, ever want to experience. So that through His death and resurrection, we we could be rescued by His love and enabled to love. This is what He's done. Not hypothetically, not theoretically, but in reality, right here, right now, in this church. He did this so we could love one another in this church at this time with these people in your home with the spouse he's given you with the kids you have with the parents you have with the siblings you have as difficult as it can be at times he's given you he's done this so that you can love there this is this is the greatest needed motivation we see it most clearly, I think, in First John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. You see that? Don't, don't miss that. He, he didn't send His Son into the world so that we could be... Um, justified and then live on our own apart from Him. 
We, we're to, to, we, we have life through Him. Always through Him. And, 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 in, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. That's the standard. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then here's the, here's the key. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we consider the enormity of your love for us in Jesus Christ, that our hearts, not just our feelings, but the very core of who we are, would be moved to love others. That it would be a willful delight in the object of love. And that we would have demonstrated in this body greater sincerity, brotherliness, fervency, and purity in our love for one another. So that we can be a, a mark, that that would be the marquee of this church, Father. Our love for one another. This is what you want from us. And so, Lord, we, we are unable to do this on our own. We cannot do this. We have got to do this through you, living through Christ. And so help us to, to be... Um, utterly dependent upon you to see this become more and more of a reality in our body. Uh, we, we know you're able. We, you, not, you don't give us commands that we can't obey by your grace. And so help us to, to be obedient, uh, dependently obedient as we, um, as we want to see this more manifested in this church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.